and welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. It's the show about how everything is posting. My name is Hussain. You can follow me at hkismani on twitter.com. My name is Phoebe. You can follow me on Twitter at PRHRoy. Uh, and uh, just before we intro our really cool and special guest, uh, just a note that uh, we do have a Patreon with lots of cool bonus content. Helps us support this show and helps us do what we do. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash 10K Post Podcast. Five bucks a month. You get lots of cool interviews. Uh, shows, uh, movie reviews, uh, a really great uh, and like much needed uh, analysis of a obscure anime series that Phoebe loved. Um, <laughs> all that stuff, five bucks a month, you get really, loads of good stuff. Most importantly, you help us just like, you allow us to like just talk about the most amazing and kind of weird posts you can think of. So it's it's worth the money, basically, especially in this economy. Um, uh, special guest uh, this is someone who uh, we've really wanted to have on for a long time both of us are really big fans of uh, their uh, newsletter we, uh, we're we joined today by Rain Fisher Kwan who is an essayist and author of Internet Princess on Substack uh, Rain how's it going? I am great thank you so much for having me on uh, we're both really yeah we're both really looking forward to it I've like just been a big fan of your tweets for like I know I, it's kind of weird I, I, don't, I don't know how people you, you're a fan I, of their tweets well I was just about to say that <laughs> because people say that to me and I'm like oh no don't 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 say that please don't say that Um, so I'm sorry but also like kind of I, I anyway yeah look big big fan over here and we are going to be talking about fandoms in this episode so yeah. we are going to be talking about the problems of fandoms mm. so maybe maybe it was a very clever segue I think um, if you say fan of someone's writing then that can like include anything they write yeah has anyone ever claimed to be a stan of someone's writing yeah is that a I, thing I, I have stans I would say that I have stans of interesting my okay yeah All not right. to not to pat myself on the back. But, you know, <laughs> just, uh, so I've got, I've got some, I've got some people who will th- yeah. send death threats to people who don't like my writing. Yeah, That's something um, I got. <laughs> I have my own digital death squads. Um, but like, yeah, I, I don't know. I've, the other kind of haunting thing is just like that. Someone that while you're sleeping, there are like people who are so dedicated to you and your honor that they will sort of work around the clock to make sure that no one is saying mean things to you online by, um, and this is like, I learned this from like a couple of uh, K-pop like stand groups where they actually, um, and maybe we'll talk about it because like, it was a piece that I was trying to write and I never got around to finishing it, but they actually have this entire infrastructure that is built around monitoring what people say about like their faves. Um, so if like, you know, uh, so while one part of the world is sleeping, the other one will sort of be in the, and they have these like all these spreadsheets and like, you know, these bizarrely complicated Google Docs, which I was very impressed and terrified by. And once I saw all those things, I was like, I'm never going to say anything about this K-pop artist ever. Mm. It's like, no, I, I know, I know what's behind the curtain. Um, but yeah, Writer, what- no, writers, writers definitely have, st- have, have stands. Um, like it's, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's like less, I think it's less common, but mm. that, I mean, cert, like certainly, um, like, a, like, a, like a while ago, there was, there was a significant, there was a significant, uh, Stephanie Meyer fandom. Yeah. Um, and there's, and there's like, and there's like kind of like proper fiction fandoms as well. Like, yeah, yeah okay. the writers definitely this have is, This is what I was thinking about. Like, I can understand with, like, YA novels or certain kinds of, like, franchise novels, like, where you will have, like, um, people who are who will, like, vociferously defend. Like, Book Talk, I think, is another one. But I was just wondering whether, okay, well, if you're Sally Rooney, like, do you have stands that will, like, threaten people? Yes. 
and apparently she does. Yeah. Apparently you do. So, yeah. uh, so, so you learn you learn new things every day. Now look, I am a stan. In in that way, I am a stan of a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I haven't actually read any of her books, I'm very sorry, but I do read her tweets all the time. Um, we, so you do read her writing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we have so uh, Rain uh, as uh, first time on here. Uh, we usually uh, talk about a post that has kind of like broken our brains a little bit, or at least sort of like in ha- encourage some chat in our in our, in our little group chats. Uh, just open the show, and I thought this one would be very good for all of us. It comes from uh, the goat of posting, uh, Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, who, uh, who people remember as a recurring character on this show, um, who says, uh, okay, so like, this is uh, a quote tweet. So the original poster says, you are the most active poster on my timeline. When do you have time to write? And Joyce Carol quotes tweets this. Number one, great show of like how truly you are. You, you are like, you understand the way of the post. Um, it takes 20 seconds to tweet. If you tweet five times a day, that's just a few minutes. But it might seem uh, to the observer like so much more, like most illusions. Um, number one, oh, she's completely right. That's it's, so true. So, like, sorry, that is so, that is so beautifully expressed. Um, because, like, at first, it seems like it seems like she's uh, making a kind of LinkedIn adjacent grind set post. Like, it's just a few minutes out of every day. <laughs> Everyone's got that. But then, but then, like you, like then you're reminded that she that like she that she is one of the greater living writers, and that's why, and that's how she comes up with like most illusions. It's wonderful. Rain, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, and yeah, like, what are your thoughts? Like, are you familiar with like uh, Joyce Carol Oates posting? Have you seen? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. I I love her social media presence so much because she's so crazy. And something that I love about her is that she has just so many misses. And then when she doesn't miss, it's it's beautiful. Mm. And that's what this tweet is: is that like mm. she she throws a lot of shit at the wall and here it's stuck because mm-hmm. that is so true. It doesn't take very long to tweet. She's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's, no, she's, not, she's not lying. Yeah. She's supposed she hit to hit the nail on the head. She's supposed to be terrifically nice. Joyce Carol Oates. Apparently mm. she is a very, very uh, gracious uh, person to work with and also replies to emails really quickly. Yeah, because wow. she's online all the time. Because she's online all the time. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit of a little bit behind the curtain about I, Joyce Carol Oates. I think this was great because so this has been the similar criticisms have been put on me in the past, right? Especially by editors who are like, "Hey, you were supposed to file something two days ago, and you're posting online. What's going on there?" And like, <laughs> usually I don't really know what to say, but I might just send them this in future, which is that like you might think that I'm wasting my time posting, and I am, but. Like writing a post does not take that long. It is like something that you do within seconds. Mm. Uh, it is something that is almost impulsive. And you like the idea of com- like sort of saying that, oh, instead of tweeting, you could have been doing something productive. Like, I just don't think that's true because that you're exercising, you know, and again, it's complete no, pseudoscience. You're exercising true. two different it's muscles. Definitely, definitely no, true. No, no, it's kind because of, like you're doing two different things, right? So, you know, you're turning yeah, on different like, halves like of your brain. A thought. Yeah, mm. it's like very instant, and I feel like the tweet really speaks to kind of a universal poster's dilemma, mm-hmm. which is that, like, pretty frequently on Twitter, I think people will sort of say, like, "Why are you spending your time tweeting about this? Like, you could be talking about this important issue. Why are you 
wasting your time getting so angry about this. And when you're the, the poster in question, it's really frustrating because it's like it took five seconds on the toilet. And people, there's kind of like this idea sometimes on the internet that everything you put out like indicates like, a high level of like emotional investment or like mm. effort and stuff like that. And I think it's nice that Joyce Carol Oates is reminding everybody that it doesn't. Yeah, yeah I think that I think that's right. Well, what I said to you about it earlier is yeah, like in like in technical terms, it's just a few it's just a few minutes, even if you're like even if you're like a heavy power user. Um I did like uh the the thing that was sort of doing the rounds about how uh, how Twitter thinks of heavy power users as people who uh, who tweet on sort of three or four days out of every week, and it's like, my God, <laughs> what are the what are the posters that yeah. you see all the time who are tweeting like every half an hour? Like, what is what is that? That's like beyond a heavy user. Um, but what I th- what I think is the difference is it's true. A tweet takes two seconds to think of and two seconds to write. But and I don't know what you think about this, Ray. And this is certainly something that I used to used to experience when i didn't have a locked account which is if you tweet fine two seconds and then you spend the rest of the day in like (laughs) potential crisis management mode (laughs) over the tweet because you then have to like monitor it and you have to monitor the quote tweets and monitor the replies just in case you end up under the nose of a bunch of nazis and mm-hmm. like, th- and I know that sounds like that sounds like so that sounds like such a kind of hysterical overreaction. But like, honestly, when I used to have an unlocked account, I th- I feel like most of my time spent on spent on Twitter was not was not my own tweets. It's not looking at other people's tweets. It was making sure that I could like lock everything down in a kind of crisis in a crisis situation and I think and I think that's I think that's like the difference I I think that's like so I think he's saying when your editors are saying like look you've got copy you've got copy due Mm. um and I can see you I can see you posting I can see you doing it you're doing it right now um (laughs) you're literally sat right next to me (laughs) you are you've you've got it open you've got the app open in your physical hand um what they mean is I've just I've just seen you do a troll post about how Candace Owens should have gone as a character from the new Avatar film to Halloween. Um, so true. And okay, fine, it may well be true. However, um, so that is gonna so that is gonna turn into some manner of situation. <laughs> so you are gonna have to be spending the day yeah. handling that situation no, th- and not yeah. doing your work. I think that would be a little. So if like someone actually sat me down and was like, "Look, the posting is not the problem. It's the management that comes afterwards, and it's the fact that like." Because and I, and I think there's like a kind of legitimate conversation to sort of be had about this, because I think when you said it, when you said this made this point this morning, like, I think you're completely right, because what I started thinking about, OK, whenever I post, like what, how do I kind of spend my time afterwards? And most of it is sort of spent monitoring the reactions to that post, um, mm-hmm. partly because like I like, you know. I, I'm 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 you know an adult hamster and I like seeing the number go up and you know app goes uh, ping yeah yeah that's <laughs> right but then at the same time it's also like yeah well inevitably especially when you have an account and like Rain you'll probably like have kind of similar you you'll have experienced like similar things where once you're once your following is at a certain kind of number like it the posters cycle will go to one where 
in in my view or in my experience it always ends up with someone calling you like a pedophile right that's how it ends but like it kind of the cycle will sort of just you know um and you're kind of what you're trying to do is like manage that cycle um and that takes up the most time um and i can understand why that might be like the thing that people so basically the thing that i reject is the idea that like the tweeting itself is uh the thing that's like a time sap sure but and the written but the reason that jco uh makes it clear that it's not a time suck is because she is not interested in post-tweet management she doesn't care Mm. there is absolutely nothing that you can say to to jco that will make her that will make her even like even like rethink a position she doesn't care she takes she takes a like I genuinely think she takes like the the true artist position, which is that you just have to create and create and create and produce and produce and produce, <laughs> and not all of it will be golden, but sometimes, some like sometimes it is, and like people try and people try it with her, and they say like, oh Joyce, this isn't it, oh oh you're this, oh you're that, and sort of make kind of level accusations at her, and she just sort of says. <sighs> I'm like 85 years old. What can you possibly <laughs> say to me that is going to have any kind that's going to have like any kind of cut through? She's absolutely impervious to the quote tweet. She's impervious to criticism. She's impervious to the at. Um, she didn't. She very noticeably didn't join in with the great furore when um, the film version of Blonde came out. Yeah. Um, about her but, being hot. Yeah. Which was like. <laughs> Honestly, Crazy. it it blew that that blew my mind a little as a position to take, and I thought it really, mm. I thought it was very expressive of where we have got to in terms of how we, um, how we think about uh, women in the public eye and women in art, because it feels like we've really come full circle uh, round to yeah, well, you're just ugly, which I think is like mm-hmm. yeah but like square brackets feminist but that's not it's not like that is not in any way a reasonable feminist position to take and like you can make a very very interesting I think and very provocative um point about how Marilyn Monroe's specific uh, and unique beauty and charisma was uh was taken away from her and was used as a used as a way of other people making money off it and it was um, it was an axis of her exploitation it was something that she never managed to get a handle on and she never managed to get to a point where she was able to control it and wield it for her own sake I think that's Mm -hmm. like a reasonable point but you can't say and you can't write about that if you're not hot because like what the fuck (laughs) the other thing is that that was so crazy about that is that Joyce Carol Oates isn't even she's not ugly she's just old no she's like, just, like, just like she's just she's just in her 80s what do you think women in their 80s. 80s look like like it's such a funny feminist position to yeah. be like this woman is ugly because she's old yeah also like that's not even the most important like rebuttal but I just thought that was really funny as yeah no no no, like, no no you're completely right and it was just it was such a weird it was such a weird way of um of approaching the subject and like admittedly i don't think that i don't think that blonde sounded especially appetizing shall we say it's not something that i would 
choose that I would personally choose to watch. Um, I think it's absolutely extraordinary that the lines seem to be that there should be some kind of very, very uncomplicated, entirely pro-choice shout your abortion position mm-hmm. in a film which is set in the what late 1950s early 1960s because mm-hmm. that's that's just that's that's bizarre and it's ahistorical and also I don't think that art necessarily needs to be entirely expressive of everybody's individual chosen politics because I think that people as people as well as um as well as uh not everyone's politics being the same, obviously, but every individual person ha- tends to have a kind of a mosaic of politics. And if mm. art has to hit every single beat for every single person that's criticising it, then that's, an impos- then that's an impossible ask. And I think it was very gracious of, uh, of Joyce not to kind of get involved in any of this. Because <laughs> like, if I'd written something... And the feedback was, no, you're not hot enough to write about this. I would I would go absolutely hog wild. I'd have their address published. I don't care. <laughs> I'd get I'd get I'd get the I'd get the hogs to find their address and go and kill them if someone said that about me. Um, yeah, she just she doesn't care. And this is and this is her power. Um, yeah. Her power is her lack of is her lack of caring. And yeah. that's why she can spend a couple of seconds tweeting a day and not think about it the rest of the time. She is an admirably anxiety-free presence. Yeah. I think like, the only thing I sort of add, like, would add is I think, like, JCO knows how... Because she also, like, it's not as if she is someone who kind of knows about Twitter in the sense of, like, basically how it works, but has no interest beyond that. Like, her other tweets sort of imply that, she, no, she knows, like what works and what doesn't she's made like a few like she's done a few tweets about like which are like quite, quite thoughtful about the blue check and the hierarchy and like you know willingness to pay and all that stuff like she she understands the slot but as you mentioned like won't sort of engage with it in a way that i suppose like the rest of us you know mere mortals will do she I basically i would kind of say that she understands but the real power in posting is to do your post and not scroll Mm-hmm. And I think that's like an admirable lesson that I will not learn from, but I will very much ad- like aspire to aspire to like uh, reach at some point. Mm. So good for JCO. Rain, do you have like any more thoughts on uh, like uh, Joyce's posting or just like generally like the idea of yeah, just like I, I suppose just the idea of like what heavy posting constitutes. Yeah, I mean, I I think that you are totally right that JCO, I mean, I think she's such an admirable presence on Twitter in some ways, because especially when I first started, when my tweets like started kind of taking off and when they would like go viral and stuff like that, it would be a feeling of dread, mm. both because I knew that somebody was going to call me a pedophile, mm-hmm. but also in sort of a meta way, like I would think like, oh, this is going to be my whole day. Like I, mm. I would think like I had stuff to do today and now I'm just going to be like scrolling on this tweet all day, mm. um, which is definitely not fun for anybody. Mm. And I definitely I feel like you have to reach like an extremely enlightened 
uh, position to like not be interested in what millions of people are saying about you. Like yeah. maybe not millions, but definitely thousands in her case. Yeah. Um, my, and, my other, yeah. yeah. My other thinking was also, and this is, this kind of like leads us into the second part, but it's also about like how different kinds of authors like engage with Twitter and like social media more generally, where with people like Joyce, who, you know, I think like her kind of work has been because it was like so well established well, like before the sort of advent of social media, like even sort of early social media, I can understand like people like like her who kind of see it as maybe an extension of I mean, I'm, I'm saying this, but like Stephen King, I think is a little bit of a basically what I guess what I'm trying to say. But yeah, is Stephen that, King posts a lot. He posts a lot and his posting style is sort of is kind of different. But what I was going to say was, that I guess, for like some authors, especially authors who have like fat, like, you know, on fandoms that are mostly kind of concentrated online and where maybe there's a pressure to sort of be more responsive and to be more engaging and to engage with your fans in specific ways. Um there's like a yeah i guess like there's a very different approach where maybe for like some I, I i don't know i guess my i guess my question is like for kind of like artists writers creatives now who like for the most part have to engage with like their audiences online because that's where you make money and that's how you kind of make a living whether it's almost like it's it's kind of like a nice aspiration to be like Joyce in the sense of you do your post, don't really care about like the blowback because it doesn't mm. really materially affect, materially affect you. But I wonder whether that applies to like, um, well, or whether that can really be applicable now, where like feed like that type of scale of feedback, um, and hyper personalized feedback can have like quite significant uh, material impacts. Mm. I mean, so you I do end that... up having to indulge. Oh, sorry. Um... No, no, go for it. Sorry. I think that if JCO has like a narrative foil on Twitter, it is JK Rowling, mm. who is, you know, very established, who the sort of chatter on Twitter is never going to affect her billions of dollars. But she is just like so transparently like obsessed with what people think about her. And mm -hmm. like she like she like name searches. Yeah, and she does. Will like, like quote tweet. She is so thin skinned. Like it's yeah. absolutely like it's absolutely unbelievable. Like, um, well, it's not unbelievable. We've like we have we have we have discussed the the uh, posting presence of uh, <laughs> of Joanne on the uh, on the show before. I think yeah, I think no, I think that's a really astute corollary. Um, we had this uh, we had this idea of her like lying like kind of like lying in the in the bath in like her castle in this like kind of cast marble bath and she can't put the phone down she's just yeah. like she's just like in this kind you know mm. sort of surrounded by like unimaginable luxury she's in this yeah. position she's in this position where she can see to it that she never need feel a second of emotional pain for the rest of her life and she's mm. still name searching to see if like if like a queer kid with 500 followers is slagging her off on Twitter. It is an absolutely, it's, mm. it's, su it's such a pathetic display. And if it's it didn't a have such, image. it's so yeah. tragic. And if it didn't have such, if it didn't have such like kind of terrible real world consequences for people, it would be quite funny. But since it does, yeah. it's sort of, it's sort of horrifying. 
Also very good insight into who would pay for their blue check. Oh god, she definitely <laughs> she, would. She would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. even thinking about it. Um if she could she would pay per tweet. I'm I'm sure of it. <laughs> I, I do I yeah, I do think I do think part of it, part of the kind of the post management tendency is just really expressive of everyone just being this kind of sort of functionally a kind of a medieval peasant sort of scared of the dark and just like the concept of thousands of people is just horrifying because you can't you can't you can't cope with it in a in a kind of in a regular psychological and emotional way so the idea of thousands of people is already kind of it's it's already horrifying and it's already like uncopable with and then the idea of thousands of people all of whom have uh, all of whom have um, interiority and lives and families and thoughts and feelings and all of that sort of thing. And they're all saying stuff about some dumb thing that you posted while on the toilet. That is like that. That is something which is, I th- I think, very deleterious to the blood brain barrier. I think that's mm. the best way of, <laughs> the best way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing that Rowling doesn't just like hire people just to ha- just to like track down posters that she doesn't like and have them killed. I mean, I imagine that might be like, as Elon is sort of looking for ways to monetize Twitter. I do think, I do think that will, I, I, I do think that will be on the white. Like oh, when we get the picture of the whiteboard with the idea that says app question mark question mark, it will be written somewhere in the corner. Twitter death what? squads question mark Assa- question mark assassin tab. Yes, for yeah. if you're rich enough. That's right. No, genuine. I mean, when we do our Twitter and Elon episode, I do have some ideas of like what would actually make money for Twitter and Twitter, like Twitter death squads. Twitter death squads okay. would probably be one of them. Um, but no, this is like a good way of like going into uh the sort of like main aspects of the show and the reason why Rain we approached you to come on because you wrote you've been like your Substack is really really like good and I would I would definitely encourage everyone to like sub to it or at least Thank kind of like you. read the free post if you don't already. Um, but you wrote like an interesting thread recently on fandoms and artists and like their relationship. And I, you, um, <clears throat> the way you wrote, even though it was like quite a short thread, um, the way that you had written it kind of made me think about because we talk, we've talked, spoken about like fandoms and their relationship to kind of art and stuff before. But I think the way that you put it out was, I, I hadn't thought about it in that way, which was like the relationship between fandoms and like the incentives that they give the artists to kind of continue making things um i'll read some of the thread out now before we sort of go into uh some of the questions that we have um so you wrote and this was like a few days ago um the way stan culture engages with uh even the slightest criticism or even vague dissent is genuinely reprehensible dehumanizing for everyone involved uh, especially for the artists that they claim to love uh you can't claim to love someone you don't respect a lot of the stands treat their favorites like their children if i was a major artist i'd be embarrassed and insulted by fans who refuse to challenge my work or bully anyone who does it doesn't show respect uh, to their autonomy or their artistry. Um, and then you sort of go on to like talk about uh, why criticism is necessary for like good art. And I, it sort of made me because like I think we've both seen tweets and like even kind of like long bits of writing before about how difficult it is to kind of be a critic uh, now because of like the fact that as you're writing, you're sort of anticipating backlash. And mm-hmm. that isn't just like K-pop groups or Taylor Swift fans and stuff. It like very much Marvel films, very much still Star Wars like movies, um, uh, which I think is like a really interesting case in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like for everything, and like Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, all it's that not, stuff. It's not just popular culture as well. Um, <clears throat> this is something that I've started to, that I've started to <clears throat> notice in in fiction as well. You can always tell 
when an author is on Twitter because uh because they, it's made them write in a weird way. Yeah, that's so true. It's, it's made them kind of it's made them it's almost like a kind of process of like progressive footnoting of your own work but it is within the body of the text Mm -hmm. and it I think it's I think it's I'm about to say you know oh I think it's really bad for art I think that's like a bad thing (laughs) I think it's like bad that people are doing that but it's I think very I think it's very very disruptive to um being able to use particularly fiction to uh to describe the world or to describe humanity or to describe a particular point in history because it means that you have to write these very dishonest portrayals of um of of human existence and human imagination because say you're introduced to a character and the character uh is has sort of various kind of privileged axes and every time they say a thought or a feeling or describe an action or say anything which speaks to their inner motivations and they say obviously i know that i'm <laughs> that i am i am privileged in this way that that way and the other and because the um am i allowed to be t- tiresome and talk about and talk about my rewrites to my book no, is you that can, allowed okay no, you can self-indulge oh, as can much I as self-indulge? you want yeah. okay thank you mm-hmm. oh, it's true it's, it's, it is literally your podcast you can do whatever much, you want I can, literally, I can i can read out bits of it and nobody can stop me <laughs> um i could stop her but i won't so i'm working i'm working on the uh, the rewrites of my first novel at the moment with the with fingers crossed the hope to um it being sent to uh sent to publishers next That's amazing. year sorry that's amazing. Oh, thank you. Um, and I um, and it is and it is about a, it is about a middle class family. They are they are a wealthy middle class family, and I found myself trying to introduce not self justifications, but more kind of here is why it's all right for you to care about these characters, even though they don't have any specific material concerns because mm-hmm. they still have like other stuff going on for them. And I sent this kind of like panicked email to my agent just being like, what if everyone is just like, this is just about, this is just about a rich family and who cares? Um, and she just said, that's fine. Stop looking at Twitter. And I was like, okay, okay. You know, yeah. you're, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And I thought that was a very... <laughs> that was a very good that was a very good answer Mm. and it was quite and it was quite helpful as well but it's definitely it's definitely I think I completely agree with what you said in that thread rain which is that it's it's actually not respectful at all of the art that you're pretending that you have a sort Mm -hmm. of serious emotional engagement with if you either won't criticize it or if it if you're playing this zero-sum game where either you criticize it a bit, but there's also other stuff about it that you like, or something bothers you about it. So that's it. That's it. You're done. You're never. You're yeah. never going to read, watch, or consume anything by by the artist ever again. And it's it's a very very strange way of engaging um, with art. And I think definitely part of it. And this is something that we have talked about before. And I'm interested. You know, as a kind of essayist and as a kind of critic, sort of how you feel about this, is that I think a lot of people have sort of lost sight of what criticism as a genre is supposed to be, mm-hmm. and 
um there's ve- uh, there's because there's very little there's very little training in um in this space so like anyone who anyone who does critic like critic work tends to come at it through uh doing other kind of freelance journalism and they sort of have to learn how to do it like that there are basically like all editors are like 32 like there is like there, yeah. there are no like kind of senior editors because they all they've all been kind of you know laid off as dead wood so there's nobody who's there to just sort of sit you down and say okay this is how you engage critically with with work and then you've got freelancers most of whom are paid very very little most of whom are reliant on being able to build relationships not just with editors but also with artists one way or the other as well like you you can always tell in a book review if the person knows the person that they're writing about socially Mm -hmm. doesn't know them socially and wishes they did doesn't know them socially and is very glad that they don't you can always you can always kind of tell which one it is and the few kind of staff writers who are um doing uh, doing any kind of criticism are like they're sort of basically immune from any pushback whenever there's a kind of serious pushback it always falls on younger precaritized yeah uh, precaritized freelancers who've basically they've basically been paid say like 80 quid to write something which their editor is then going to completely throw them to the wolves about um mm. things that uh things that are a kind of a hot a sort of a hot take version of criticism does really well because that like kind of responds to the that kind of responds well to the kind of sharing model so you've either got to really love something or you've got to really hate it and so much of it as well I realize this is a very very long thing and now I'm just at the end going to say do you agree um but um part of it as well is that is that so because it's because it's lost it's lost its bite as a genre um because people recognize um people recognize comment pieces and they recognize opinion pieces but they don't recognize what criticism is supposed to yeah. look like so they think criticism is is supposed to be it's supposed to begin and end at evaluative so yes. is this good or is this bad and ideally they would like that evaluative to be that evaluation to be moral yes that is completely so true and I also find that often the response, like I, I totally agree with you that I think that just sort of consumer public in general does not seem very aware of how to engage with criticism um, mm-hmm. because like I see very often the response to like a, a good piece of cultural or artistic criticism will kind of be like, why are you being mean? Mm. Um like that happens like all the time or it's like let people enjoy things oh, which is a phrase that I'm sure we've all heard many times <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and i i you know sort of hesitate to talk about like the good old days of criticism or whatever because i'm like 21 and like a college dropout and i don't have any training or anything like that but i do think that i i don't want to just like not that this is what you guys are doing, but I think some people have the impulse to like blame just the public, like blame the mm. consumer public for not knowing how to engage with criticism. But I do think it, like you were saying, it is a very institutional issue. And, mm. you know, like all of the people who have like advanced film degrees, they can't afford 
to do criticism anymore because journalism doesn't pay and there's no staff jobs and you can't make over a dollar a word anymore. And so like the, the quality of criticism and the availability of criticism has been deteriorating for over a decade, maybe 20 years. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And just because like the, and you know, all of the best writers, like we saw all of these great critics get like snapped up by Netflix, like a couple years or last year or whenever it was. Um, I, cause I can't, the passage of time is like boring <laughs> me now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, it was around that kind of time. Yeah. And I do think that it's sort of this like snake eating its own tail where mm. there is less of a demand for criticism and a, like less, less of an understanding of criticism because there is less availability and normalization of good criticism, which creates less demand for criticism, which, yeah. And I don't quite know how to get out of it. (laughs) No, it's it's very, very difficult. And there's also, I think, there's also a sense that is quite sort of pervasive. Um, I don't know if it's it's like this in the States, but it definitely is here because uh, the United Kingdom... um, uh, nurtures an aggressively anti-intellectual culture and mm. also um, it's practically impossible to go into any kind of creative industry now um, if you if you don't have some kind of familial support it base it basically doesn't exist like the uh, like the like once like once upon a time there was such a thing as like as like writers and musicians and actors who were on the dole and that's just it just does it it simply just not doesn't exist anymore mm. and people are and people who might otherwise be um be producing really really brilliant work both on the kind of creative side and on the critical side are like are driving for Deliveroo and that's just yeah. uh, that's just this kind of hideous situation that we found ourselves in but there is also a sense that that is kind that arises from that that serious criticism is by its very nature elite and elite mm. and elitist and is based on having gone to a very very small set of um schools and universities and is not a kind of and is not a kind of meaningful metric which it should be of any interest to the average consumer of of culture and I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that, like, oh, well, what they should do is they should just make James Woods required reading. That's just what they should do, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is. But it is something to be. It is something to be considered. And like you, like you said, I think it's very much the case that we shouldn't necessarily be thinking in terms of blaming the consuming public um, for this situation because a decent amount of it is the absolute disastrous destruction of of. Uh, an even remotely workable uh, model of media, a workable model of publishing uh, that doesn't that doesn't just privilege a very very particular way of producing, consuming, and uh, and reacting. So even so, even the kind of the 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 like the news hook journalism tendency means that people who might want to write something critical don't have time to think or mm. marinate so if you try to if you try to pitch a an essay about a film that was out 3 months ago even though 3 months is you know that's it's it's not very long mm-hmm. then an editor would just say why are you pitching this to me i don't get it yeah 
this is this is done. We've done this. The 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 cycle is over, mm. and, a, and a rolling news cycle is very very antagonistic to serious cultural criticism. I think. Yeah, I completely agree, um, and I think that you know, and this is something that we're we're going to get into, but another huge obstacle to the criticism of things like Marvel movies and these like very mainstream properties and these like big books, like the Colleen Hoover books, the JK Rowling books, even like, is that I sort of sense that particularly, I think recently, maybe because of the ways that like a communal culture has degraded in other ways, Mm -hmm. people are increasingly turning to these huge media properties to not only like define and represent themselves and like who they are, but also to define and represent like their relationships with the Mm -hmm. world around them and with their family. And with like, like when you criticize a Marvel movie, there are going to be a million people who read it and feel that you are criticizing their relationship with their father because (laughs) that Oh God, it's funny because it's true. Yeah. It's yeah. Because they, grew up watching Marvel movies with their dad and suddenly they're like, it feels like, you know, you're saying, Oh, so that was wrong. And, you know, and that is this huge obstacle and it creates this very personal reaction um, of sort of anger and bitterness and resentment that makes it incredibly difficult, you know, first of all, to publish these stories in good faith and then also to want to continue like writing criticism of these things i remember i I, when um the first big avengers films came out i went to see it with my dad because i thought he might in he he might kind of enjoy some like bright colors and loud noises and when we came out he he just he just said like he was just like silent in the car and i said did you like it and he said it's fascist propaganda and i was like okay (laughs) i guess i guess we'll never be having this discussion ever again i mean he's not incorrect however (laughs) mine was like transformers was better and i was like what kind of answer is that when i asked you correct answer is is. michael bay's transformers was better like what anyway like i really like michael bay's transformers i do but i just didn't expect that that's a surprise <laughs> that's a surprising bit of feedback i've got to um, say but like rain like the thing that you just mentioned like it kind of so when i was like doing these notes uh the other day like one thing i was thinking about uh was uh the uh your fave is problematic like um i never actually saw the tumblr blog i, I kind of only realized it was a tumblr blog fairly recently but i did hear it kind of being used a lot to describe people who were being kind of like valorized online um and then sort of you know uh and it was it was an interesting kind of phrase because again like the idea of like it was around about the time when like problematic was being popularized among sort of like your new media outlets and everything like your buzzfeeds and stuff which was around about the time that i was there as well um and it kind of presented this idea not that like it wasn't necessarily like criticism of a celebrity in and of itself but it was it also seemed to be like no by you sort of like being a fan of someone or you liking someone or something you are also kind of like complicit in like whatever is deemed to be problematic so it was this idea that like liking an artist or liking a piece of art or whatever or even liking like a media property where was like a moral dimension to that and therefore like if said thing became problematic even like and not really not for like kind of big scandalous reasons but just kind of like a might like I didn't want to say minor transgressions, but also I'll just say like transgression. Um, 
it was almost like a condemnation of like the fandom in and of itself. You wrote about this recently in relation to uh, Taylor Swift, but I think you've also written about it in like other like in other contexts. I like it was kind of a big part of um, your very good essay on during the Amber Heard trial as well. And I wondered whether you could elaborate a little bit on that and just like how we sort of get to this point of um, kind of like establishing a kind of moral framework around uh, enjoying something or enjoying someone's work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was like maybe 13 when Your Favorite Problematic was really popular on Tumblr. And I read it like obsessively. Like that was like, like me and my friends, like we would sit at the computer and refresh the blog and wait for the new entries to come up. And like, even at the time, I thought that it was like a bit ridiculous. Like on the entry for Taylor Swift, very famously, one of the things that she did was that was problematic was there was a picture of her when she was like 13 and mm. she had gone on vacation and she had cornrows. Um, <laughs> and she was like very visibly like 10 years old, like very visibly a child. Yeah. Um, so like everyone kind of knew that things like that were a bit silly, but I mean, a lot of people didn't, but even if you did, like there was something extremely addicting and Mm. exhilarating about being able to almost Mm. exhibit a degree of like moral power over these celebrities Mm. um, and to be able to to judge them and to feel a sense of superiority over them or to feel validated when you liked a celebrity that wasn't problematic and yeah there was this like also this very exhilarating feeling this very validating feeling when you liked an artist that wasn't problematic Mm -hmm. and that hadn't been put on the list because it it did it indicated a sense of personal moral superiority Mm. Um, and I think this is also something that I've written about is that I think particularly recently I think this has increased people are turning to the media properties they consume the items they consume all of these sort of consumer properties uh, to define the kind of person they are. Mm -hmm. Like it sort of, there's, I don't know, the internet has sort of become this site of very conspicuous consumption to project an image of the kind of person you want, you are that the kind of person you want to be perceived as. Um, And there are absolutely, uh, you know, media properties that good people consume or that we think that good people consume. And there are, 100% media properties that bad people consume. Mm -hmm. Like you can see this when people talk about like male manipulator novels. Like there's sort of this very popular idea on the internet that like good people read very uncomplicated, um, you know, sort of very consumer fiction, um, like the rom-coms, the like that kind of thing uh, that don't really have a lot of room for moral gray areas. And that's what good people read because these people are looking to see themselves represented in the media that they consume. And if they, so if they consume media that has complicated people, that means that they themselves are morally gray. Mm. And because they understand that they are, you know, seeking to consume media that they feel represented by, they assume that people who consume morally gray media or media with complex characters that they must be morally impure because why else would you want to read a book that doesn't reflect your experience like you know i feel i think i think part i think part of that is um i completely agree with what you're saying and i think a lot of this has its origin in i think quite 
well-meaning attempts to uh, prevent uh, to prevent uh, creators from making use of and stealing marginalized experiences and making money off the back of marginalized experiences and because the because online uh, as we rather online as mediated by social media platforms is so incredibly reactive and so incredibly overcorrective as well that's turned into you must never ever ever write a uh, write anything which is not your precise exact lived experience mm-hmm. um everything must read like it's the contents of your journal otherwise you are you have created a sort of a morally impure um cultural product and it also has led to like quite a kind of odd sort of like almost like kind of arguments in like which are absolutely not meaning to be in favor of segregation and that and yet they kind of end (laughs) up being in that way but like again square brackets segregation left wing um (laughs) and it's and it's like it, it, it like it's interesting and it's puzzling and i'm really interested in the idea of um you as a teenager being really interested in like who was like who was problematic and and who and like and also like kind of chiefly kind of who wasn't as well um and i'm wondering whether you were sort of consuming that like almost like a on a kind of on like a like the same kind of scale and space as like as like celebrity gossip but it's like a kind of enhanced yeah. kind of celebrity gossip so like who's having an affair with who and also who is like possibly a bit racist who is possibly a bit sexist who is possibly a yeah. bit homophobic was that yeah, was totally. that kind of part of it because I, like sorry no, no do, do go on oh yeah i i mean i just think a hundred percent and i think it is really interesting how you know, like my mom read gossip magazines growing up and I would look at them and those magazines were not pretending to be arbiters of moral truth. Like they were very openly, they were catty, they were mean, they were trashy. That was like a very implicit part of their presentation. And they were judging celebrities for all of these things, but it really didn't feel like they were, you know, acting like these, you know, necessary arbiters of good and bad. It was kind of a you know, like a sort of libidinal, like, you know, just like an enjoyment thing of this celebrity gossip. Mm. And I definitely think that now that has shifted and people still desperately want to consume and judge the lives of celebrities and they want to consume and judge the lives of other people, but they don't want to feel like bad people for doing it anymore. Yeah. Um, because I think that our society our capital S society is still, <laughs> it's incredibly shame-based. Shame is so essential to the way that our like social media system runs and our political mm-hmm. system runs. And I feel like the more time that I spend on social media, the more that I see that everybody has just built an entire political philosophy and personal ideology around figuring out how to metabolize their shame. Mm-hmm. And it's I think that a lot of people really instinctually want to do the same things that people have always done and that really are not terrible things like they want to be mean to people they want to you know relish in the pain of celebrities they want to judge and gossip but like I said they they want to feel good about it 
now. Mm. They they want to feel like it, they are better people for having mm. done it. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways is what all of this moral policing is. And I think it is also a way for people to metabolize their own shame. Um, because I think that it's a lot, I, I think that you feel like a better person and it's easier for you to like, you know, maybe shove down the things that you're ashamed about when you're like pointing it out and mocking it and, and punishing it in other people. It sort of, you know, points the finger away from yourself because yeah. ev- everybody knows that they're morally gray and that they think terrible things sometimes and that mm. they've, they've hurt people like that. They've done things that they regret. Every single person in the world feels this. Um, but I think a lot of people, yeah, have sort of developed whole ways of dealing with art um, and dealing with popular culture that attempt to ignore that as much as possible and then sort of compulsively compulsively punish the people who do admit it and who are mm-hmm. honest about it. Like a kind of like a kind of weaponized social hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Because uh, I'm I just want to go back to what you were saying about um about your mum reading gossip magazines because I just wanted to pick out a word that you used which I thought was really interesting which is libidinal and I think that's actually I think that's actually a really good way of accounting for the um sort of of desperate slurping desire for like Mm -hmm. or for problem problematizing stuff as well it is like there is a kind of almost like visceral and libidinal aspect to it and I was like wondering as well is like when you were when you were interested in sort of in sort of consuming this kind of content, was this was there a kind of fee, ever a feeling of um, kind of enjoyable transgression in like carrying on liking someone who had been who had been deemed problematic and sort of taking the ah they did this but I don't care or was it very or was it very kind of like very monomaniacal in that kind of in that in the way that it kind of gets played out now. I feel like maybe if I had been a bit cooler, um, I would have I would have been interested in in liking um, more more problematic people. But mm. when I was when I was thirteen, I felt like I was very uh, very anxious about about sticking to the rules and stuff like that. Mm. And you know, even when the I don't know, even when the judgments were openly very ridiculous. Um, I, the the culture on Tumblr and that kind of thing was very restrictive in that yeah. sense. And, you know, like, especially when you're 13, when you're 12 or you're 13, nobody wants to be a, like a bad person. And the the whole culture that existed on these sites was like, not only is this person a bad person for doing this thing, but if you like them or if you even consume their work or if you enjoy anything that they've ever put out, it's like this sickness that has tainted you as well. And now you are a bad person. And I feel like at the time, you just want to compulsively avoid that as as much as possible. And that's what I really see happening with people like Taylor Swift Mm -hmm. is that, um, you know, like she becomes this moral object and like liking her, standing her becomes a moral choice. And Mm -hmm. people like Taylor Swift are very, very good at this because she has always been like a very moral choice. Um, and she even says like in her, in her documentary, she says this thing that I think is really interesting where she says that her whole personal philosophy for her whole life has been defined by a need to be seen as good. Mm. And which, God. 
Yeah, which, you know, sounds exhausting and suffocating. And I think most of her fans completely agree um, Mm. and completely relate to that. And it makes it it makes her a very tantalizing object. Um, And I do think that it is objectifying is is sort of yeah, like is kind of the thing that I was gesturing towards in that Twitter thread is that it is an objectifying thing just to focus on an artist's like moral worth, like worth as a, as a moral or social object far over their actual output. And Mm -hmm. the thing that is really interesting that you see with Taylor Swift is that because she is a, a person, she's like a human woman. She has like done things that are wrong she's she like has made mistakes of course she's done, yeah that's just like, like you know of course, what, of course she yeah, has yeah. like obviously <laughs> obviously that's like what it is when you're like a human person mm. you do things that are wrong you make mistakes and she also has put out some stinkers in terms of her her actual artistic output but what's really interesting and what is kind of a shift from like the your favorite problematic era is that instead of rejecting her when she does these things or when she she talks about these things, her fan base seems overly occupied in just insisting that that isn't real, like that she mm. is a perfect moral object and that they can still be perfectly morally good for engaging with her work. It's, a and, kind, it's almost like a kind of cultic thinking as well, like just sort of thinking about how we were, um, how we were talking about sort of ver- like ver- how various other kind of particularly um, online um, online conspiracy movements um, sort of sort of take hold. Sort of part of it is you kind of have to is you have to sort of speak the articles of faith. I suppose I think like I think part of this as well is um, yeah, it's very objectifying. You're completely right. Uh, it's also it's also expressive of um, of a of a moment when most individual people's political uh, political and social agency has been diminished to the point that mm. their only real agency is about is over which products they consume yeah. and so mm. everything has to be turned into a product whether that um whether that is um the art that they like or the music they listen to or the films they watch or the books they read and the thing about being a customer for a product is you want customer satisfaction and you mm. want to be able to control the product so if the product is faulty i.e if it if it is problematic then you see it as a customer service issue and not a case of kind of human flaws um but i'm sorry to go on about you you being 13 and looking at this stuff on tumblr just because i think it's just because i think it's really interesting because i was a i was a teenager in the pre-internet times or rather like not the pre-internet times but definitely the pre-social media times and definitely the Um, internet and you know internet available everywhere like you had to like when I was a teenager um, you had to wait until your mum got off the phone before you could Mm -hmm. use the internet and basically nothing worked and it was a it was a very very different time Um, and I don't remember morality being something that I ever thought about particularly and if I did it was located in much like much older and I suppose much more kind of traditional and conventional structures so I thought morality came from your family and what you got taught about what was the right Mm. way to be in the world Um, morality came from if you were um, if you were a member of either a kind of religious or kind of culturally religious community your morality came 
from that. That was a kind of structuring kind of moral force. The idea that morality would just come from like the girls I went to school with was just, <laughs> that would, that's just ridiculous. Like the idea that if they, if they had some kind of moral objection for, on, on whatever grounds, um, for say the music, the music that I liked, it just it wouldn't have it wouldn't have entered my thinking as being something that I had to give even the slightest, mm. the slightest credence to. <laughs> and I think that that's like I think that's an enormous change. And I think that part of it is the is the uh, interest in treating uh, treating tech platforms as personal publishing platforms and personal diary entries. And the expectation that both art and criticism should also be reflective of that kind of tendency as well. So it's just it's just about wanting to know what someone thinks and wanting to be able to tell them whether or not they are wrong or they are right according to your own personal system of morality, which is so 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 complicated and like made up of so many different, um, you know, electrodes and and parts and it and it's expressive of where you grew up how you grew up who your fam who your family were um it's there are so many different aspects that go into somebody's personal system of morality and the idea of being able to see that reflected back at you whether that be in a book or a film or an album or in someone else's post is is insane that's an insane yeah. idea <laughs> <laughs> um i'm like i'm gonna shift in my bed which- yeah yeah go ahead I'm sorry that I'm sitting in my bed. I don't have a chair for my no, desk no. yet. That's <laughs> absolutely fine. Is, That's is absolutely fine. I wish it was me, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> we should get like a bed sofa in here and record for and record sitting on like yeah. the giant armchair. It's really fun. It's it's yeah. I like doing it. Um yeah, I think that you're totally right. It's like it's a bit like tongue in cheek to say that we're like kind of a godless generation. But, you know, I think that it is pretty true that I think something that is sort of emblematic of mm. my generation is, you know, in, in a way that is largely positive, you know, kind of a degradation of faith in the various entrenched structures that have like mm. defined social life and society up until now. Like a yeah. lot of people in my generation, you know, have like do not follow a religious faith have lost faith in the government, don't have faith in the family, the nuclear family as a structure, like have rightfully like, you know, seen the abject failures of the world that we live in and have started to criticize kind of the the moral truths or the structural truths mm. that generations before us kind of followed. And I think that has left us in kind of this weird like dark ages scramble yeah. for a moral truth or for a guiding light and i think that it is tragic and like funny but also very sad that mass marketable consumer properties seem to have swept in to fill that void yeah absolutely um, and and people have and people's conception of themselves as little more than the capacity for consumption has totally. has repl- has replaced the old structures like one one does not necessarily want to want to do the uh, 
the old world is dying, the new world is struggling to be born. <laughs> However, <laughs> if you look at like the replies of the of the journalist who wrote the who wrote the review of Midnight's, um, it's difficult not to say this is the time of monsters. Maybe it actually yeah. just is <laughs> simply the time of monsters. Yeah. Yeah. There were so many things about that that were so interesting. I thought it was really fascinating this like pitchfork review of midnight mm -hmm. first of all it was a very positive review it was um, yeah. it just received like a seven out of ten which is very positive for pitchfork and again it was this sort of i feel like it was this extension of the moral doctrines that these communities follow which is that anything less than perfection is a failure mm -hmm. and deserves to be punished or rejected and the thing that I thought was really interesting is how the reviewer is a woman and a ton of the the quote tweets and the stands piling on were just like, they were all saying like, of course they got a man to write about Pitchfork. Like of, only a man could misunderstand it like this Ooh, when yeah. it was a woman with a gender Achoo, neutral Achoo. name. I've had like a few quote tweets where people have been like, so, you know, they they said like, quite interesting with like the W with the oh, <laughs> and I've been like, so oh. and I've been like I don't I don't even want to respond to that. That's great. That's really good. You can see like I have like a very Islamic name. Like you know what Aaron Thorpe does for that stuff now? Cause like yeah. every so often one one of his posts pops <laughs> off and like he gets people in the app saying like yeah. um saying like I beg you to listen to black people. He just sends them back a picture of himself now. <laughs> which I think is which yeah. I think is to incredible. Be, yeah, to Although, be, I mean, yeah. he's only done it once but when i saw it i was just like yes <laughs> to be fair it was probably my fault because i had like a sort of like gundam like you know uh avi at the time so i to be yeah. fair that is quite yeah, a white thing to do yeah that's fair enough okay that's, <laughs> admittedly yeah that's that's, that, that's fair enough. i was also just going to add that like i think like the religious like i went to religious schools like growing up and everything and um you know in in the case of like m like kind of islamic twister and muslim twister and stuff there is like this thing called the haram police where <laughs> if like you are kind of perceived and like the haram police will kind of like they will um so what they used to do, and this was like it was a very gendered thing like inevitably so if they would see like a muslim woman like hanging out with a male who like they didn't think was like their husband or something they would sort of send a dm being like you know sister you shouldn't be like you know going out you know it was completely and they would say that about like you know if you listen to music for example or if you like you know these things that the haram police can consider to be like against the sort of core tenets of the religion in the way that they sort of interpreted it but they had like a very absolutist way of doing it which is like they weren't interested in like where, why the art was bad or why they felt that it was like morally transgressive it's like nope it uses instruments you're not allowed to listen to it you shouldn't be listening to it you shouldn't be promoting it simple as i like the kind of you know the black and whiteness of it all yeah and yeah. with like i don't know whether like in sort of stand like in some fan cultures yeah. it's I actually like bit. the black and whiteness of it all. No, I don't. But like, I appreciate that like it, there is an absoluteness in being like, okay, well, I understand why you're mad at me. It's because I, have I'm, yeah. I have a certain envy for it. Okay. <laughs> because I, I think it must be quite a restful yeah, way yeah. to live. Well, well, this is well, this is how they promote like this kind of core tenets of like what they interpret as the religion, right? Which mm. is that like, you know, as long as you sort of follow these core tenets, which includes like never listen to anything with like instrument, like we've got use instruments, you'll be happy. And the reason why you're not happy is because like you're kind of indulging in all this stuff that, you know, has been uh, forbidden by like the holy texts. So I appreciate the absoluteness in that in terms of I understand exactly what you're saying. And I, I can sort of see parts of that when you kind of and when you're kind of like tweet 
ends up in like a fan community where it didn't belong but somehow ended up in anyway mm. but it feels like you i kind of feel really sorry for or you know because it, it it feels like a lot more complicated to then try to navigate and negotiate people getting mad at you because it sort of it uh, i don't know how to i don't know how to sort of articulate this but it doesn't it, it doesn't feel like it's the black and whiteness but it's still kind of does i i don't i yeah. don't know i don't know if you understand no, what I'm no saying. i do understand what you're saying just a just a just a quick aside um yeah. elon if you're listening um uh swifty haram police as an idea <laughs> for monetization okay, yeah just that's a that's an idea yeah i wouldn't be surprised except it'll be like i don't know like whatever fucking weird reddit band he's like into what is it like you know what i'm actually really interested in the answer to this what 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 do we reckon a reddit band is because i don't associate reddit with music at all Mm. i think that a reddit band i i have a locked and loaded answer to this question i think that a reddit band is like one of those like geek bands who make like electronic music like about like five nights at freddy's (laughs) <laughs> okay. god that is specific but yeah i i think you're probably right yeah that kind of music is like extremely popular on tiktok um if if you didn't know like it's kind of this like like vocorder um fast-paced like sort of electro funk music that is mm. always about like video games um oh, boy. and that to me and it's actually this is a complete aside but they have like these conventions and it's honestly like it's kind of heartwarming to see Mm. like it'll be like a whole i just see videos of it on tiktok because everybody loves these songs for some reason it'll be like a stadium of people all singing a song about five nights at freddy's and to me it warms my heart like i never thought that all of those people could find that community yeah, no, but that is no, that is really sweet. Like, I mean, this is this is the thing, and I think this is why I think this is why this sort of stuff is like is like so so saddening, really, because being part of like me like music subcultures and music fandoms, particularly, like this was something that was like this was super important to me when I was when mm. I was younger, and like a, li- like a little bit a little bit ago, um, I went to see Mogwai, who I've liked since I was. Sort of 12 or 13 really really like lovely to see them they're like they're one i think they're one of the best live bands um and there were loads and loads of people there who were like i suppose about, about like like 10 years older than me i say loads of people though there were loads of men there um i have never had to queue for less time to go to the bathroom <laughs> at any music event i've ever been to in my entire life <laughs> at that mogwai show um so yeah so like a bunch of men there who were like i suppose like what like i don't know like kind of a decade older than me and they'd obviously been like you know kind of sort of true believers fans for the last like you know 25 years or whatever and they were there with their sons and that was just so <laughs> sweet i thought and but then again like mogwai fans don't mm. Don't send death threats to journalists. Well, wow. wow. maybe they do. No, no, maybe they not do. You yet. know what? If you're a ma- yeah, exactly. Not yet. Maybe I'll start. Maybe I'll start doing it. Um, I think. Yeah, I think what is what's what's strange about the 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 attacks on the oh yeah, no, uh, like obviously this is a man. Obviously they didn't understand midnight. Is that there is a kind of tendency to 
tendency to overcorrect and there isn't a tendency to overcorrect over anything which is deemed to be anything to do with young women and mm. I and my position on if if if, if, any, if anyone wants to know uh, my position on Midnight's is it is not a particularly good album I don't think it's terrific I was I was a little bit disappointed by it um but I also I don't want to see straight men making fun of it that's not mm. something which I feel like they have been given permission to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that whenever there's a kind of, whenever there's a sort of very, very reasonable system of criticism growing up around um, the behavior of, uh, of stands, of stands mm. the behavior of fandoms, I always feel like people get a little bit, a little bit too comfortable with making it public how much they despise young women yeah because there is plenty of reasonable aesthetic judgments to make about midnights which does not involve just calling young women stupid and mm -hmm. a lot of men online seem very very unwilling or unable to <laughs> to to make that to make that to uh, understand that rather um and yeah, no, I do think it's, um, I do think it's, I do think it's very, I do think it's very saddening. And I do think that, um, sort of going back to what, going back to what we were saying about having lost faith in the government and lost faith in institutions. This is a sort of process that's been going back, going back decades, um, this mm -hmm. kind of loss of trust. And the only thing that, um, particularly young people feel like they have any trust in is, their consumer choices and your consumer choices are again this is like this has been part of the project of advertising going back even going back even further it's to align mm. individuals with their consumer choices your consumer mm -hmm. choices say what and who you are and if you can't trust the government not to lie to you and you can't trust the government to keep you safe in times of crisis and you can't trust the government to extend um, compassion and care to the most vulnerable sectors of society and you can't trust the media not to back the government up and you can't trust the media to tell you the truth then all you can trust is yourself and what you can buy yeah I think that is totally extremely apt and yeah I also think that you are completely right that there is a ton of misogyny directed at these young women. Mm. And I was actually going to say that, you know, sometimes when I'm talking about this, I have to remind myself to be more empathetic also, mm. because another big part of why there has been this, like, you know, sociocultural shift in fandom is because for essentially as long as anybody can remember these I don't know, the world of like art and the world of like art communities and niche art communities have been dominated by like legitimate abusers and like actual mm -hmm. pedophiles and mm -hmm. raging misogynists and racists. And, you know, like a lot of young women have had terrible experiences yeah. liking the music that they love or, you know, either, either like by the artists that they love or by other people punishing them mm -hmm. for being young women who like something. And I do think that also a lot of this culture is an attempt to like grapple with that and an attempt yeah. to correct 
you know, all of these terrible structural failures that have failed particularly young women for a very long time. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm conscious that we're kind of running close to time, but I wanted to ask you uh, one kind of last question, which is, I guess it sort of brings it back to posting and to kind of, um, one thing I was sort of thinking about was whether um, within like trying to understand the sort of reaction to criticism, uh, art criticism, like legitimate criticism and so on, there is this kind of, maybe there is this sort of tendency to kind of read criticism as aggressive in the way i don't know like my my thinking was that a lot of sort of online communications and like people you kind of touched on it uh very uh, briefly about like people who are kind of like deliberately antagonistic and deliberately kind of like undermining um and it makes sense for like some fans especially like uh yeah especially like young women to kind of read that as sort of being like unnecessarily antagonistic aggressive uh and so on. And I wondered where, like, how much that type of, like, has that sort of shaped fandom or, like, shaped kind of how fans respond to criticism? And is that, do you, do you kind of see, is there a problem in sort of, like, distinguishing, like, legitimate, fair criticism of cultural products um, with, like, a broader kind of internet parlance of where people are just, like, naturally more aggressive and naturally, like, will try to just be much more insulting because they can't. I don't know if that makes sense or um, whether like that just needs to be cut out. Could can I just hear it again? Again? Is that yeah, okay? I'll try. I'll try. Okay, I'll try it one more time. And if not, then we'll just like I'll say my brain is completely fried and we'll be done for today. <laughs> um, which is great because I've got to do another podcast after this one. Um, yeah, so do I. We've all got other podcasts to do. He's okay. Well done. Well done. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess what I was going to ask was, uh, is there a way of like to kind of there, there's a point like where you sort of mentioned about like fair criticism and how that can often be responded to in ways that are maybe disproportionate or like maybe sort of read as like aggressive when they weren't supposed to be. And I wonder how much mm-hmm. of that is influenced by a kind of like it, or influenced by um kind of digital community like internet uh, or just the way that kind of certain art on social media is talked about where you know people especially towards things that are kind of um where fandoms do sort of consist mostly of young women uh or probably have like a sizable amount of not young women whether i don't know is is there it do you mean um sorry just trying to get yeah, what sorry, you're yeah. do you, do you mean that because so much of communication which is directed at particularly young women and then that gets kind of like worse and worse and worse along kind of different axes yes, so yeah, like yeah. young black women get the absolute like worst yeah. of it um is They're it because so much of it is antagonistic that there yeah. is a tendency yeah. to assume the absolute worst yeah. and so even respond to fair criticism yes, as if yeah. it so, is deliberately aggressive and yeah, antagonistic exactly yeah you said it better than me my brain is completely That's done for today. i'm fun. very sorry about that fun. but yeah no, i would love okay. to just know your thoughts about that before we wrap up yeah i mean totally i think that's also something that I come to recognize the more time that I spend on the internet um, is that, yeah, like from an empathetic perspective, a lot of these people like have received just like mountains of bad faith criticism. And when you receive like so much bad faith criticism, I think it does become a lot harder to believe that criticism can be in good faith. You know, it's Mm. kind of like, it's like being triggered, like in the classical sense, like Mm. um, it kind of takes you back to, 
but like when you hear anything negative about this artist, it sort of triggers these experiences of hearing so many like, you know, disgustingly bad things about this artist. But I do, you know, as understandable as it is, I do think that it is an overcorrection that mm. is remarkably harmful and disrespectful, yeah. not only to the artist, but also to the mm. consumer. Um, mm. Because like, as a consumer, you deserve to be given good art. Like you, you deserve yeah. to be consuming art that respects you. You deserve to be respected as a consumer. Um, and artists deserve to receive criticism. Like it's yeah. part of being respected as an artist to have your work engaged with honestly and yeah. truthfully. And Absolutely. I, I mean, and I think the Taylor Swift case is like really, really interesting um, and I, I kind of wrote this in my review as well, is that something that is really interesting about this album is that she sort of writes about like her own personal complexity for kind of the first time ever. Like she mm. talks about like her actual flaws and like the ways in which she is like not good, um, which, like I said, for somebody whose whole personal philosophy is apparently being perceived as good, like that is a huge personal and artistic step that I found very impressive, even when I thought that other parts of the album were lacking. Mm. And something that I thought was really fascinating about the way that I saw Swifties engaging with those parts of the album is that I saw like on TikTok and on social media, like overwhelmingly people were trying to interpret those songs like if in a way that was still not an indictment of Taylor herself, like people were mm -hmm. theorizing that these songs were written from the perspective of other people mm -hmm. or that like they, there was some like trick of language that could make it so that it, she wasn't actually talking about herself being at fault, yeah. mm -hmm. um, which I thought was so interesting. Like even mm -hmm. taking these messages that an artist is honestly trying to convey to you about yeah. herself and being so obsessed with her as a moral object, again, this objectification this obsession with like how consuming her reflects on your own moral purity that you are ignoring and rejecting the artistic output that she's trying to produce. It, it is disrespectful yeah. to everyone involved. And I think that when, you know, especially when you see these good critics writing good, even generous criticism, being doxxed, being sent death threats, like mm -hmm. these, these terrible things, you are not doing your favorite artist any favors no. um, yeah. by creating an environment in which people are afraid to honestly criticize or review their work. Mm. And, you know, like any serious artist like Taylor Swift, like probably cares deeply about wanting to produce the best work possible. Mm. Um, and I think that, I don't know, I think that it, it's profoundly negative that a lot of people aren't interested in that. Um, like don't don't mm. seem to care about actually the quality of her output um, yeah. or the truth behind her output. Yeah, yeah. I think it's probably a good way to end it. It is indeed. Um, also, like, because we've really run out of time. Yeah, we have. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really good point, Rain. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you. Uh, just yeah, thank you so much for hanging out. So your work is really good. Uh, and uh, as mentioned, we will add uh, the links to your Substack in the show notes. But if uh, people want to follow your work in other ways, how can they do that? Uh, my Twitter is at rainfq and my instagram is rain incorporated cool it's great it's a great uh, insta, insta handle yes, yeah. um 
uh as mentioned uh thank well number one thank you for listening to this episode as mentioned we have a lot of good bonus content on our patreon patreon.com forward slash 10k post podcast phoebe do you plug anything before we go uh yeah um i do a seinfeld podcast with milo edwards which is called masters of our domain which you can follow on twitter at masters of pod where we post episodes and stuff you can follow me on instagram if you like it's phoebe underscore rosa underscore holly um actually this is a ties into what we were talking about today because I've been doing this project for the last two years where I listen to a new album every day and then I write a little review and I put it on my Instagram stories um so yeah if you want to tell me to go fuck myself because I (laughs) because I uh didn't like midnights that much then uh yeah feel free <laughs> feel free yeah. to do that I might, do not do that i will call the cops i might like next time you review a jazz album and you're just like uh jazz i might i, I might don't do say that. uh jazz i just say i don't know anything about it which is true i just quite like it oh okay so okay someone else doesn't like jazz i'll do it to not them me. okay that's like fine jazz. i'll, I'll, like I'll harass them instead okay um no i'm not gonna harass anyone uh <laughs> final thing this show is produced by devon you can follow them at devon underscore on f also listen to their podcast which is called kill james bond Um, And on that note, uh, we'll wrap it up. So have a good one and we'll catch you on the next one. Bye. 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 Bye.